0: Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. So many times he had refused their claims. After he fed the 5,000, they were going to take him by force. They were going to make him king, but he withdrew to the mountain. He refused to allow them to crown him king, two blind men on another occasion followed him with their incessant crying, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us, son of David. He asked, do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, was their unison reply. His hand touches their eyes. Their faith has made them whole. As they opened their eyes, the rabbi wrinkles his brow. See here, tell no one about this. His warning was stern. He had a secret to keep. If people knew for one moment that he was able to bring light to dark eyes, that was the sign that it was he, that he was the Messiah. The Old Testament prophets, they didn't cause any blind to see. Shh, don't tell, he says to the once blind, now seeing men. He had a secret to keep for so long, but they couldn't keep a secret. They told everyone. If he wanted everyone to be silent before, why is he now allowing them to shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. though Jesus usually recalled such displays of fanaticism and messiahship, this time he just let them yell. He just let them yell. To the indignant Pharisees, he explained, I tell you, if I make these disciples be quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out. Was the prophet from Galilee now being vindicated in Jerusalem? Look, look, said one Pharisee, the whole world has gone after him. The triumphal entry has an aura of ambivalence. As you read these accounts, there is something of a slapstick nature of the whole affair. Perhaps a a Roman soldier gallops to the back to see what all the disturbance is about. Now, he had seen parades before, well, the way the Romans do it, and and they do it right. If it had been a Roman parade, the general would have been in a chariot, spiked wheels, sparkling in the sunshine. Behind that would have been the officers carrying the banners of the countries that had been vanquished, and at the back of the parade would be the prisoners of war showing this is what happens to anyone who dares defy Rome. But in this triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up the ragtag procession, Why, the ones who are doing the praising, it's the lame, it's the blind, it's the children, it's the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. When the officer looks at the object of their adoration, he spies a forlorn figure, weeping, riding on the back of a donkey's colt, but nothing but a cloak for a saddle." seemed like an awfully strange parade to him. Yes, there was a a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but, but not the kind of triumph that impresses Rome and not the kind that impressed the crowds of Jerusalem for very long either. What kind of king is this? The disciples were still excited about the triumphal entry. They were sure they were coming into Jerusalem to set up a kingdom on earth. As they celebrate the Passover with Jesus, there's so many more surprises in store for the disciples as they move through the Passover ritual. John tells us that Jesus, knowing that God had put all things under his power, Now, that's an odd statement. He begins with a statement of power. Jesus, knowing that God had put all things under his power, gets up, takes off his outer garment, takes up a towel, bends over, and washes Jerusalem dust off of the feet of his disciples. What a strange thing for the rabbi to do. What a strange thing for the guest of honor to do during a final meal with his friends. What an incomprehensible behavior for a ruler who would momentarily announce, I confer upon you A kingdom. In those days, foot washing was so degrading that even a Jewish slave could not be required to do it. Author M. Scott Peck says the scene of foot washing is the scene of Jesus. Up until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to fight, claw their way to the top, and then do everything you need to do to stay on top, but here's a man, here's a Messiah, already on top, a rabbi, a teacher, a Messiah, and suddenly he goes down, down to the bottom, down to wash the feet of his followers, in that one act. Jesus overturned the whole social and power structure of his day, hardly comprehending what was happening. And yet, his own disciples, they themselves were horrified by the fact that their teacher, their rabbi, was doing the job below slave. Oddly enough, of all evenings on that evening, the Gospel writers tell us there arises a dispute amongst the disciples as to which one of them will be considered the greatest in the kingdom when it arrives. Now, Jesus doesn't deny our innate nature of competitiveness or ambition as his creation, he simply just redefines it. The the greatest one among you will be the least among you, and the one who rules will be the one who serves, who washes feet. That's when he proclaimed it. That's when he said, I confer a kingdom A kingdom, in other words, a new kind of kingdom based upon humility and service. The foot washing, the disciples had seen a painted picture of what it means to live in God's kingdom. And now 2,000 years plus hence following that Tableau has become no easier. Surely not I. It's not I, Lord. I know it's not me, said another disciple. He dropped a bombshell that evening. One of you is going to betray me. They were terribly upset with that kind of talk. How could there be a traitor in our midst as just the rabbi and the 12? He prayed all night before he chose them. I mean, they were his choice. How, if, if the crowd were bigger, if it were a, a larger group of disciples, yes, but how can the rabbi say in this closed-door meeting between the rabbi and his dearest disciples, how could he say that one of them was going to betray him. A few moments after Jesus drops the bombshell, Judas quietly gets up and leaves the room. Arousing, however, apparently no suspicion. I mean, he's the treasurer. Perhaps he needs to go out and get some more supplies, or perhaps he needs to run an errand of charity on behalf of the group. Maybe the rabbi has told him there's something that needs to be taken care of. The name Judas, it once was a common name. Lots of Judases in Judas's day. I'll venture a wager with you that there's not one little boy named Judas in our preschool today. I'll I'll venture that bet with you. No one wants to name their son after the most notorious traitor in history. And yet the thing about Judas that surprises us the most is not his villainy, but how ordinary. He really seems. He, like the other disciples, had been handpicked by the rabbi after an evening, a long night of prayer. As treasurer, he obviously held the trust of both the rabbi and the other disciples. And even at the Last Supper, he seems to be seated in a place of honor close to Jesus. The Gospels contain no hint that Judas is a mole infiltrating the inner circle to plan his perfidy. If Judas is alone as a betrayer, he's surely not alone when it comes to disappointing the rabbi. When it became quite clear what kind of kingdom Jesus was talking about. They weren't going to ride into Jerusalem and hail Him King and set up an earthly throne. And there was no need for them to argue about who was going to be seated at the right or the left hand when He set up His kingdom. When it became all too clear that this throne was a cross, it was not of this world, Each and every disciple we will see chose to disappear into the darkness. Jesus is going to leave his disciples. They are disturbed by his foolish talk. He's saying, I'm about to go to a place and where I go, you cannot come. And they had spent three years following behind him. And how is it now that he's saying that after they've left family and friends and, well, fishing boats behind, that now he's going to a place and where he's going, they can no longer follow. And Peter says, Lord, I don't care where you're going. If I have to lay down my life, I'll follow you. Peter. Really? Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Jesus tries to bring them comfort. That's where we have our passage. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house or many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may also be. You know where I'm going. You know the way. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. We do not know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives unto you. Don't be afraid. Don't have troubled hearts. The upstairs room in Jerusalem was filled with smells of lamb, bitter herbs, sweaty men. Jesus and the band of the 11, now with Judas gone, move out. In the cool evening, the spacious olive groves in the garden called Gethsemane. Spring was in full bloom and, well, the fragrance, the blossoms were in the air. Outside the hustle and bustle of the Jerusalem Passover, the disciples, once comfortable in the garden, began to sleep and slumber. Jesus, however, feels no such peace. The gospel writers tell us, and I quote, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That's the way Matthew puts it. He was deeply distressed is the way that Mark writes it. Both writers record his plaintive words to the disciples. My my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. Keep watch with me, pray with me, he pleads. Now that's a change of course. All the other times Jesus tried to get rid of the disciples so he could be alone with the Father. You guys get in the boat. I'm going up the hill a bit. See you later. But not this time. This night, in spending the night alone with the Father, for some reason, he needed the presence of the disciples, especially the presence of Peter, James, and John. By instinct, don't forget, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. By instinct, humans, we we want someone by our side the night before the surgery or someone by us in the nursing home on the eve of our death. In any great moment of crisis, we want that reassuring human presence. That solitary confinement is such harsh punishment, perhaps the worst that humanity has ever invented because it is being alone. In the Gospels account of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't want to be alone. When the disciples failed him, Jesus did not even try to conceal his hurt. Couldn't you just for one hour keep watching and praying? All I asked for was an hour? Is it possible that for the first time ever, being alone with the Father was a scary thing? Take this cup from me, he cried to the Father. And it was no pious former prayer. It wasn't read out of a book. It was from his soul. In fact, his sweat becomes like blood falling to the ground. It's a struggle, this Gethsemane. Why why is it such a struggle? Is it the fear of the suffering of the pain of crucifixion, the worst kind of death ever invented? Oh, I'm, I'm sure there's some of that. Being fully human, he didn't relish dying on a cross any more than we would. But there's more at work as well. It's called God forsakenness. At its core, Gethsemane depicts, after all, the story of, well, an unanswered prayer in some ways. Take this cup. Take this cross. Find another way, Father, See them there on the, the distance they're on the hillside they're already beginning to wind the parade the torchlight parade down sneaking the pathways down into the garden soon the disciples would forsake him and during those prayers those anguished prayers that met the stone wall of god's no response must have felt as if god too had turned away John Howard Yoder speculates on what might have happened if God had intervened to grant the request, take this cup from me. Jesus himself was by no means powerless. If he had insisted on his will and not have been obedient to the Father's will, he could have called down, the gospel writers tell us, well, he could have called down 12 legions of angels. Count them, 72 to fight the holy war on his behalf. In Gethsemane, Jesus somehow is reliving the temptation of Satan in the desert. Either time, he could have solved the problem by force, one quick dagger in the desert against the accuser, or this fierce battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why, if he had chosen to call down the 72,000 angels that he said were at his disposal, it would have changed all of history. The kingdom would have come, but it wouldn't have advanced like a mustard seed. It would have been a hell storm. And there would have been no place for you in the kingdom. Because in that kind of kingdom, there would have been no messy business of a cross, or redemption. It would have just been creator taking over creation again. It wouldn't have solved the problem of sin, my problem, your problem, to do it that way. The cross The cup that seemed to be the thing that Jesus, at least momentarily, wanted to find a way around. Well, that cross is the very reason that he came to earth, and he knew it. Here on the cross, we find the man who loves his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's here on the cross that we find the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is here on the cross that the rich do become poor. It is here that he fulfills the Sermon on the Mount because he gives his robe to the ones who took his cloak. It is here that he fulfills his commandment that we are to pray for our enemies. The cross is not a detour or a hurdle on the way to the kingdom, nor is it even a way to the kingdom. The cross is the kingdom. It's where the business of God, the arrival of the kingdom, comes. After several hours of torturous prayer, Jesus came to a resolution and his will converges with the will of the Father, and he says, Not my way, but your way. 600 Roman soldiers come looking for a rebel rabbi, and they're surprised that the one they're seeking comes to them. He approaches them. Who are you seeking? We're we're seeking Jesus, the one from Nazareth. And then that moment of identity, I am he. Why, yes, it was saying that he was the rabbi from Nazareth, but it was more than that, wasn't it? Wasn't that Exodus? Wasn't that the burning bush when Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? You tell them I am has sent you. I am Jesus said they fall back at the power of his divine proclamation. A scuffle breaks out. Peter brandishes a sword and whacks at Malchus's ear. Jesus puts his hand on the ear and heals. He says, Peter, Peter, don't you know that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword? And there's 72,000 angels if I wanted to swing the sword. What is this? I was in the temple every day and you didn't come after me, but now you come after me with clubs and swords like a common thief. Rogue hands grab Jesus. They go and get the ropes. The disciples begin to save their own necks. There's one disciple, probably John Mark. Someone grabs his garment. He realizes there's only one way out. He wiggles his way out of his robe and he runs naked. He hears the footsteps chasing behind him. He hears the footsteps of his own fears and he runs all the way to the brook below and looks back to see he's alone. John Mark flees. Peter follows Jesus at a distance, and first it's a servant, girl. You're one of his, aren't you? I don't even know him, Peter says. And then warming himself by the fire, another servant says, Hey, hey, that accent, you're from Galilee. He curses, No, no, I have nothing to do with him. And then the cousin of Malchus, well, Peter cut his ear off. He remembered the one who had had hurt his family. Hey, you're the one. He, He denies thrice. A cock crows. Jesus looks at Peter. Peter remembers Peter weeps. Matthew 26:56b. Judas betrays, Peter denies, John Mark flees naked, and then notice all the disciples left him and fled. 26:56b. All the disciples left him and fled. Peter had been so sure, they were all sure. Don't think you might fall? Asked Judas, asked Peter, asked John, Mark. The contrast between Judas and Peter, they both failed their rabbi. And yet one is repentant and comes to the grace, all the grace of God, and the other is remorseful but seemingly not repentant. And he goes and takes his own life and goes down recorded as the greatest traitor in history. And, And Peter goes on to preach a revival in Jerusalem, to take his revival all the way to Rome, and to die for the one... That he had denied. Where are you? Peter, Judas, John Mark? He's entering Jerusalem. The rocks are crying out. Let us pray. God, that story is so old, and yet today it's so new. God, that story is so familiar, and yet today it's so fresh. Will we allow you, O oh God, to redefine what it means to have power? Will we understand, O God, the necessity of the shed blood of our Savior for the payment of our sins? And though we all have denied Him, we've all fled naked to save our own necks. Will we meet Him on the shore of grace and restoration? Father, May we always be here in our place so the rocks will not have to cry out. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.